You can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 25. So as, as we've been coming through the gospel of Matthew together, this is where the Lord has us this morning. 25 verses 1 through 13. Quick reminder, how ought God's people to hear God's word read and taught? Some of the phrases in scripture are trembling at his word. God's people to be those that fear the Lord and tremble at his word. Think about how that affects you as God's word is read to you. Another phrase in scripture is incline your ear and hear. In other words, lean in, listen to the word of God. It's a warning for us against laid back, casual listening. This is words from the living God when we read this. I want to encourage you to learn the things that we walk through here, like those Bereans that received the word with readiness and then searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. They learned it. They owned it for themselves. And don't forget, this is worship. Just like Dustin mentioned a moment ago, worship doesn't stop when you stop singing. God's word is open and we worship as we see Christ and everything that he says and who that he is, who he is in his word. We worship him. So we're going to take time to worship him in his word now. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we count it such a blessing, and it is, that we get to, that we get to read this book from you together. And we get to meditate on it together. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us through your word this morning. You know every need in the room, Lord. Convict us, comfort us. Draw our eyes, Lord, to look unto Jesus. Please, Lord, help us in this time. We want to be those that tremble at your word. We want to be those that incline our ears to hear. We want to be those, Lord, that know how to worship as we read and meditate on your word together. And God, we know we need your help for all of this. So please, Lord, help us for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're at chapter 25, verse 1 through 13. Just a little bit about the context, uh, what's going on here. Remember, this is, the Olivet, this is sitting right in the middle of the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives and he's speaking to his disciples and a lot of what he's saying, especially towards the end of chapter 24, is about his return. He's about to die for sinners, rise again from the dead, ascend on high, and he promises one day he's going to return. And he begins at the end of chapter 24 to speak a lot about his second coming, about his return. And so I want to encourage you as we read verses 1 through 13 of chapter 25, I want you to hear it in that context Was this Chapter 25, verse 1 through 13 connects right in to what we've been walking through in chapter 24. So look at God's word and let's read it together. Then the kingdom of heaven 
will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So this passage can be broken up into uh, two simple sections. Verses 1 through 12 is the parable that Jesus has given. And verse 13 is the application. So it gives us a clear application in verse 13. So the parable is introduced here with this phrase, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. So Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of heaven, about his kingdom. Now, why should we care about insights into the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus cares about it. This is a phrase that he repeated over and over again. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. He wants us to know about this, and we ought to want to know about it. Not to mention, the more you understand about the establishment of Jesus' kingdom and what he's doing and what he's going to do, it's going to affect your life right now. It's going to affect how you live today as you understand what the kingdom of heaven will be like. Now notice here is future tense. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. Now typically, the majority of times that phrase is the kingdom of heaven is like now. But this, this is giving us insight into what it's going to be like in the future. What's to come for the establishment of Jesus' kingdom? And that's what this parable is all about. Now, let's just try to think through the plain sense of this parable. In other words, what do we see here? Do you understand the, the symbolism, the imagery, the, uh, the parable that he's given? Here's just the plain sense of that. We have a marriage feast, right? We have a wedding. We have a marriage feast. This is uh, joyful. This is, this is beautiful. This is celebration. There's a marriage happening. There's a massive feast. I mean, uh, 
uh, marriages and, and wedding receptions in our day are joyful and beautiful events, and yet it pales in comparison to what it was in this day. This was a massive event, a long event. A marriage, a wedding feast has come. And we have a bridegroom here. This parable speaks about a bridegroom. He's coming to get his bride, and he's going to take the bride to the marriage feast, more than likely at his home, at his house. So we have a bridegroom going to get his bride and going to take her to the marriage feast. The wedding has happened, and now here comes the marriage feast, likely at his home. And then we've got ten young girls here. They're called virgins, ten young ladies. Now, in this uh, story, not exactly like bridesmaids, but they would be sort of like bridesmaids in this story, in the wedding, and, and as they head to the marriage feast. It says that these young girls are carrying lamps. Uh, maybe a better term there would be torches. Uh, John 18.3, it speaks about the men that came to arrest Jesus, and they were carrying these torches, the same Greek word here. So you've got these, these young ladies carrying these torches because what they're about to do is they're, they're about to be a part, a major part of the torchlight procession as the bridegroom gets the bride and takes her to the marriage feast. They're a part of the torchlight procession and they're going out to meet the bridegroom. Now the parable tells us that half of these girls are wise and half of them are foolish. Now the five that are wise, it says it's because they brought oil for their torches. They anticipated maybe there would be Maybe there would be a delay of the bridegroom coming and we would need to have oil for our torches to keep burning for the torchlight procession. And then you've got the five foolish. And they're foolish because they did not bring oil for their torches or for their lamps. They didn't anticipate any delay. And so they're called foolish here. Now we're not told why they didn't bring oil. You know, maybe they just didn't think about it. Or, or maybe it was too burdensome to carry a torch, a lamp, and the oil. You know, maybe it was too burdensome. We, we don't know the reason why. Maybe they just didn't expect the delay that would require extra oil. We don't know. But we're just told that they're foolish because they did not bring the oil. And, and as the story continues, we realize that's right. That proves true. They were foolish for not having oil for their lamps. And so as you keep reading the story, the parable, the, bri the bridegroom is delayed. And we're not given the reason that he's delayed. But he is delayed. And the young ladies all fall asleep. And it makes sense that they fall asleep. It's the middle of the night. So they all fall asleep. The bridegroom is delayed. And according to our passage, it says, suddenly a cry goes out. And can you imagine that? Everybody's asleep. It's in the middle of the night. It says midnight. Really, it's just the middle of the night sometime here. And a cry goes out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And all these ladies, these ten virgins, they all wake up. It's here. It's time for the wedding feast. It's time for that torchlight procession to the marriage feast. It's here. And so it says they wake up and the wise virgins, it says that they're ready. 
They begin to trim their lamps or trim their torches. They're trimming that burnt stuff off, reapplying oil. So they trim it and reapply oil and they're ready to go. But it says in our passage that the foolish virgins were not ready. And they suddenly realize, they suddenly realize, oh no, we're not going to have enough oil for our lamps. We're not going to have enough oil for our torches to be a part of the torchlight procession. Oh no. And they realize that. First thing they do, they ask the wise virgins, give us some of your oil. The wise young ladies say, no. And that might sound unkind to you or like they're not sharing, but I want you to understand this is not a parable to teach you about sharing. This is a parable to teach you to be ready for the second coming of Christ. They say no. Then there wouldn't be enough for us or you to make it. Rather, go and buy your oil. Go buy some now. And so these foolish virgins, they quickly go. They buy oil for their torches. But by the time they return, the wedding party has already left. It was too late. And the wedding party has already left. They missed their opportunity to be a part of the torchlight procession and so I'm sure they're distraught but they think to themselves that's okay we'll just go to the groom's house and and even though we weren't a part of that procession we'll go to the groom's house and we'll go to the marriage feast anyways and so the parable tells us they show up there but when they arrive they notice verse 10 says the door is shut they show up to the groom's the bridegroom's house and realize that the door to go into the marriage feast is shut. Verse 11 says, they stand outside that door. They begin to knock. They begin to call out. Listen to the desperation. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. They're desperate. Open to us. Please open to us. And the response they get back is devastating. Verse 12, But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Devastating answer. I don't know you. And that door was never opened for them. And they never entered in to the marriage feast. Now the application we're given here in verse 13, think with me about this application. Watch therefore. The disciples hearing this should feel this warning. They should feel this command. I want you to feel it as well. Watch therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus really, really wants you to know this. He really wants us to know this. I want you to think about this. Chapter 24, verse 42 says this. Listen to it. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. He's coming back, and you don't know the day, so stay awake. Look at the repetition, verse 44. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. He's coming at a time you don't expect. You must be ready. Look at verse 50. 
24 verse 50. The master of that servant will come, he will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. And because this servant wasn't ready, verse 51 says, and will cut him in pieces and will put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then, of course, you come to our verse today, the application, verse 13. Watch, therefore. Watch. Stay awake. You don't know the day or the hour of his return. Now, let's talk a bit about the interpretation of this parable. Now, there's, there's been a lot of mistakes in history of trying to take every little point of this parable and make it, you know, draw a line to some specific thing that it means. And that's not the point of the parable. It's a pretty simple interpretation. You have a bridegroom here. And who's the bridegroom? Well, the bridegroom obviously is Jesus. Jesus is this bridegroom. Now, the Old Testament references God, the almighty creator God. The Old Testament references God as the bridegroom in several places. An example would be Isaiah 62, verse 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God is the bridegroom, according to the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, these, this, this title of the bridegroom gets applied to Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God made flesh. He is the bridegroom. Let me give you an example of that. In John chapter 3, verse 29, listen to this. John the Baptist notices that all the people are going to Jesus. They're all going to the God-man Jesus. And John the Baptist, it says this, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, so John the Baptist refers to himself as something like these Five wise virgins here. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So Jesus is the bridegroom. What a wonderful description of Jesus and the way he is toward his people. He's the bridegroom. This reminds us that he is in covenant with his people like a marriage covenant. It reminds us that he's one with his people like two people become one in marriage. It reminds us that, oh, he loves us like a good husband loves his bride. He's the bridegroom. And this is a beautiful description of him. Now, this description, it really gets to the heart of what the Bible is all about. You know, the Bible begins, Genesis 2, and ends, Revelation 19 through the end, it begins and ends with a wedding, with a marriage. And so the Bible is all about this. It's a story of a bridegroom that's winning his bride and bringing her to the marriage feast. Joe Rigney summarized the Bible as, kill the dragon, get the girl. Remember Genesis 3.15 says there's one coming that's going to crush the head of the serpent. Revelation 12 calls that serpent the dragon. Kill the dragon, get the girl. This is what the Bible, this is getting 
to the heart of what the Bible is all about. In this parable, we see Jesus as the bridegroom coming to get his bride at an unexpected time. Jesus will come. He will return. He will bring us to the marriage feast, his people to the marriage feast, and it will come at an unexpected time. But listen, it will certainly come. I don't care what the mockers say. Peter said that in 2 Peter 3. I don't care what the scoffers say. He will most, most certainly come again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ are going to rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up to the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we, we will always be with the Lord. The Lord will descend. He will come. Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Man, it's coming. It says it's burning like an oven. And all the wicked will be burned up like chaff. But to, but to you who fear His name, to you who fear His name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings. And you'll go out skipping like a calf. But this day will certainly come. Jesus is the bridegroom. So this parable is about Jesus, the bridegroom, gathering his people. Well, where will he take them? Well, that's the marriage feast here. Jesus will take his true people, those are the truly his people, to the marriage feast. Now I want to read this to you because it gives you some insight about the marriage feast in Revelation 19 and Revelation 21. And I know you've heard this before. Many of you have. But I want to encourage you to let this, let this wash over you. Uh, consider, what's, consider what I'm about to read to you. Several verses here about this marriage feast that the bridegroom has taken his people to. And I want you to just listen to it. Let this wash over you as something beautiful and glorious and something you look forward to and expect if you're in Christ. Revelation 19.6 Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, listen to it, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. There's a Lamb that was slaughtered for sinners and he's, there's a marriage coming, a marriage of the Lamb. All weddings, all marriages, all point to this one that's coming. The marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. She's prepared for His coming. It was granted... It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those invited to the marriage supper 
the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Revelation chapter 21, we get more insight. Listen to this. What's he taking, what's he taking his bride to? What's he taking his people to in this marriage feast? Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. For her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. As our brother John reminded us last week, the greatest gift of the Gospel, He will dwell with them and they will be His people. We get to be with God. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I'll be his God, and he'll be my son. Let that wash over you. The bridegroom's coming for his people. He's going to take them to the marriage feast and it's this beautiful stuff that he's bringing them to where we get to dwell with God forever and see Christ face to face. So Jesus will take his true people to the marriage, to the marriage feast. But not everyone that seems to be his people are really his people. Not everyone who seems to be His people are really His people. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian will make it to the marriage feast. And these ten virgins are here in this parable to warn us about that. That everyone who claims the name of Christ will make it in the end to the marriage feast. These ten virgins, and we're, just, we're still interpreting this parable, these ten virgins represent all those who profess to be Christians. Not necessarily all of humanity, including those who openly reject Christ and hate God. Not, not, that, not that. But, all, but these ten virgins represent all of those that would profess the name of Christ. They would say they're Christians. They would seem to be a part of the visible church. Now we mainly see that if you notice these these uh, five foolish ones that don't make it to the marriage feast, they're with the wise. They have similarities, carrying torches like the wise. They seem to be waiting for that bridegroom and that marriage feast. There's similarities there that make us think like this. But the main thing that tips us off that these ten virgins represent all those that profess Christ is this reference to chapter Matthew 7, verse 21. Now I want you to see this. 
Chapter 25, verse 11, look at it again. It says, afterward, the other virgins came also saying, listen to what they say. They're standing at the door and they say, Lord, Lord, open to us. And the answer they get back is, I don't know you. Now, does that sound familiar to you? And it ought to sound familiar to you because it's, it's a reference back to Matthew chapter 7. And I want you to hear this. Matthew 7, verse 21. It says this. Not everyone who says to me, listen, not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, not everybody who calls him Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, at the return of the bridegroom, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Lord, Lord, just like in our parable. And what is he going to say to those many that call him Lord but aren't actually prepared? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I don't know you. I never knew you. Just like in our parable, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So that reference reminds us that what we're talking about in these ten virgins is not just all of humanity, but those that call Jesus Lord. Those that would seem to be headed towards the marriage feast, and yet here's, here's a many that Jesus talks about, many who call Him Lord, but they're not ready. It's clear from this parable and other scripture that not everyone who professes Jesus as Lord is going to make it in the end. It is possible, hear me out, it is possible to be in company with other Christians like these foolish virgins, to seem like you're headed to the wedding feast like these, other, these foolish virgins, to look like the others carrying your lamp, carrying your torch just like these foolish virgins and even to call Jesus Lord but in the end to be found lacking that's possible according to our parable and according to other places in scripture the scripture is clear that on the final day there will be those excluded that think they ought to be included Lord, Lord, open to us. Did we not prophesy in your name and work many miracles in your name? We're here. Why is the door closed? Depart from me. I never knew you. They weren't expecting to be excluded, but they were. Now, the categories, I want you to hear this, the categories given in Matthew 24 were the faithful and the wicked which reminds us it is a wicked thing to reject Jesus, to walk away from Him, and to be unprepared for His coming. It's wicked. But the categories given us here in our parable is not faithful and wicked, but wise and foolish. And it's a reminder to us, listen, it's not just wicked to reject Jesus, it's foolish. If you understand what's coming, you know what's coming? Your life is coming to an end. Christ Jesus is going to come. You don't know when. It's foolish to reject Him and to be unprepared. 
How foolish to gamble with your eternity. And let me just say, I just want to say that to everybody here. Every person here, listen to me. It is foolish to gamble with forever. To have this little life and I guess I'm okay, everything's probably going to be fine. It's foolish to take a gamble like that. Eternity is coming. The day of the, the, day of the Lord is coming, burning like an oven. And the word here for those unprepared is that's foolish. Don't gamble with your life like that. Now how do we how do we obey the application here in verse 13? How do we obey the application in verse 13? Look at it, verse 13 says, watch. That means stay awake to the coming of Christ. Be alert for the coming of Christ. Don't sleep on Christ. Don't be unprepared, but watch. How do we obey that command? Now, first off, and most, most foundationally, the thing you probably need to know more than anything else is you need to make sure that you are one that is known by God. You need to make sure that you are one who is known by God. And I'm getting that from verse 12. When they're knocking at the door and they're saying, Lord, open to us, open to us. The response they get back is not, you, you didn't have any oil in your lamp. It brings us into reality all of a sudden, right, in, right at the end of the parable. Lord, open to us. And what does he say? I don't know you. I don't know you. You need to make sure that you're one that is known by God. You're known by Christ. Does God know you? Now, when I say that, I'm obviously not talking about his omniscience, right? Our God is omniscience. He, he knows everything. There's nothing that he doesn't know. He knows everything. He has all knowledge. So when he, when he says here, I don't know you, he's obviously not speaking about his omniscience, as if there's something in the universe he doesn't have the knowledge of. This is about a relationship with God, that He knows you relationally, that He is your Father and you are a son or a daughter of God, to know Him relationally. He knows you and you know Him. This is the language. I want to read something to you from Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, that's the, way, that's the way Paul's talking about somebody before they're converted, before, they come, before they're saved. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now, here's the way he thinks about somebody converted, somebody saved, listen to it. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Did you hear that phrase? Salvation. Now that you've come to know God or rather to be known by God, this is speaking about a relationship with God. So be honest. Do you just know about God 
or do you know Him? Do you just know facts about Him, or do you know Him, and does He know you? Knowing facts about God, knowing facts about Jesus, and even appreciating facts about Jesus is not saving knowledge. It's not saving faith. You can know a lot of facts about Jesus and even like it and miss the wedding feast and be sent to to weeping and gnashing of teeth. Are you in a relationship with Him? Do you know Him? And are you known by Him? Notice these young girls, they call Him Lord. They know a fact about Him. They call Him Lord in our parable. They've got no lack of desire to be at the marriage feast. They want to be at the marriage feast. Calling Jesus Lord and believing in heaven and even desiring to be there does not guarantee that you're saved that you're truly saved and will make it to the marriage feast. Are you known by God? This is something that everybody in the room needs to get settled and you need to get it settled now because you don't know the day or the hour. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourself as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourself whether you're in the faith unless you've been disqualified? Examine yourself. you got to get this settled. Test yourself. Are you saved? Are you known by God? A time's coming when the door will be shut. And it's final. It's permanent. And there's going to be a mass of people knocking on the door in desperation. Please open us. Please open us. And they won't get a positive answer. I never knew you. Depart from me, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Darkness forever. Eternal punishment. Please hear these words from Luke 13. Surely you can catch the similarities here. Luke 13, verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Talking about Jesus. And someone said to him, Lord, Will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, And you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then He'll answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and and drank in your presence and, and you taught in our streets. But He'll say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me. All you workers of evil, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Make sure you're known by God. So how do we obey? 
How do we obey verse 13? Watch therefore, you don't know the day or the hour, the number one thing, you need to make sure you are known by God. There's nothing more serious than this. You ought to take this more soberly than anything else in your life. Do you know Him? Are you known by Him? Or will you be like many who on the last day are expecting to be included and yet you'll be excluded? Depart from me. Now if you are truly known by God, there's more to think about with this application in verse 13. Stay awake, he says. Now those who, those who are truly known by God, those who are truly His, will stay awake. They'll persevere to the end because Christ is their high priest. Always living to make intercession for them. Now how do we, but how do we do it? How do we obey the command to watch, be alert, stay awake? How do we do it? And let me just give you a few words of application here. Number one, stay awake by removing things that make you spiritually sleepy. Is there anything in your life, as you survey your life, your day in, your day out, as you survey your life, is there anything that's in your life that's making you fall asleep? Listen to Hebrews chapter 12. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. Not just sin. What about weights? Are there weights that are making you sleepy so you can't run with endurance to the end looking to Christ? And if there are, put them away. How do you obey this, this command to watch and to stay awake? Put away anything that makes you spiritually sleepy. Now here's, here's one thing that might help you. I feel like it's helpful. Jonathan Edwards, a well-known pastor of the Great Awakening, wrote his famous resolutions. Well, one of them says this. This is something he resolved to do. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Christ is coming back in an hour. He's coming back. And if you knew that He was coming back, don't do anything that you would be ashamed to do if you knew that His coming was imminent. So stay awake by removing anything that makes you spiritually sleepy. Number two, stay awake by full devotion to God's Word. Full devotion to God's Word. The Word of God is like spiritual caffeine. Wakes you up. Keeps you awake. But if you neglect the Word of God, Proverbs says this, Cease listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. How do I stay awake? Hold to the Word of God. What are you doing with the Scriptures? The Bible's not something pastors just read. Christians are people who've had their, their eyes open and the Holy Spirit indwelling them so that they can know God's Word. 
Every Christian, not just pastors, every Christian is a man or a woman of the Word of God. They thirst for it in a way that they didn't used to because they used to be dead and now they're alive. And the Word of God helps you as, you, as you're consumed with the Word of God, it helps you to stay awake. Now I want you to understand how that works. Because as you're consumed with God's Word, what are some things that you're seeing over and over and over again as you read it daily, as you meditate on it constantly? What are you seeing constantly? You're seeing the commands of God that you're to obey. And that relates to Matthew 24, right? The second coming is like a master that went away and he told his servants to do some things and they were to stay awake by obeying him and do exactly what he said until he returns. But one of those servants, what happened? They started to think, oh, he's not coming back. He started doing his own thing. And so, and so be consumed with God's Word. It makes you aware of the commandments of God so you can be like that servant, staying awake, obeying God until he returns. It helps you see the promises of God. As, you, as you're consumed with God's Word, you're constantly seeing a promise, another promise, another promise. And these promises are how you wait. If you go read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, it says the day of the Lord's coming. The heavens are going to be burned up. It's coming. And then it says Christians are those that according to His promise, Wait. So we're not just waiting, twiddling our thumbs. No, we're waiting as those that are thinking about His promise, meditating on His promise, expecting God to fulfill it. I don't care what the scoffers say. I don't care what the mockers say. God said this in His Word. I believe Him. I trust Him. And I'm waiting on His return. And the more you're in the Word, you're seeing not just the commands, but the promises. Also, you're seeing the knowledge of Jesus. As you're consumed with His Word, you're seeing who Jesus is. And what He's like. And listen, the more you know Jesus, the more you'll long for His return. The more you know Jesus, the more you'll, you'll, you'll be awake and ready and prepared for the return of Christ. There's a phrase I love. I'm going to read it to you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. And by the way, Paul knows here he's, he's about to go. He's about to die. He says, I fought the good fight of faith. I finished the race. I kept the faith. And, look at, and listen to verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And you're thinking, good for you, Paul. And not only to me, but also to all, and I love this phrase, who have loved His appearing. See, longing for the second coming is not just about looking forward to an event, but it's the one who is coming. They love His appearing. It's about the one that's coming. And the more I know Him in His Word and adore Him and, and, and love Him and long for Him and desire Him, the more that's happening in my heart, man, the more I love His appearing. I'll be awake. I'll be watching. So be consumed by the Word of God. Are you soaking up the Word of God or are you asleep? 
Number three, stay awake by continuing earnestly in prayer. Continue earnestly in prayer. You see this over in Jude, verse 20 and 21. It says, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for the mercy of the Lord to appear. So while we're waiting on Christ to appear, we're praying in the Holy Spirit, a people of prayer. There's nothing like secret prayer. Shut your door, pray to your Father who's in the secret place. There's nothing like that that makes you aware of another world, that this life is not it. There's nothing like secret prayer that does that. And there's nothing like the neglect of secret prayer that reveals sleepiness. Spiritual sleepiness. So continue earnestly in prayer. How is your prayer life? Colossians 4.2 commands us, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Stay awake. Stay awake. And lastly, number four, meaningful church membership. Some of you might turn your nose up at me on that one. Meaningful church membership. Stay awake by meaningful church membership. Here's what I mean. Hebrews 10, verse 24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another. One another. Some of something the church does to one another. Stir up one another to love and good works. That's the positive side. Stirring one another up to love and good works. Here's the negative. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And listen to this last phrase. And all the more as you see something. All the more as you see the day approaching. The day's coming. This is fellowship. This is meaningful church membership, being hooked into your church and, and exhorting one another and loving one another, stirring each other up in light of the day's approaching. We're helping each other make it to the end. It's that kind of fellowship. We're helping each other stay awake. Brother, don't be the... Don't be the one that's unprepared. Sister, don't be the one that has no oil in the lab. Come on. It's fellowship in light of the day of the Lord. Now, when I say meaningful church membership, I'm just talking about a biblical relationship with the church. In our culture, the church is not understood. It's misunderstood so often. I'm talking about look at your Bible and what does the Bible teach your relationship as a Christian should be with a local church. And I mean that, meaningful church membership. Not just going to a church meeting, an event on Sundays, although that's important. But in the very definition in the Bible of the church, it's a group of people that are covenanted together, that are committed to one another, that are locked arms together. Not just a superficial relationship with the church, but weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. 
Meaningful church membership is this Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. It's the word of God. To the prayers. To the breaking of bread. And it says to the fellowship. And that word fellowship is like a, it's a partnership. They were locked arms together. They were devoted to that. They were covenanted together, submitting to a church, locking arms with the church, committing to the church. That's biblical church membership. And done right, this is used by God as a means to help you make it to the end. Which is why Hebrews 10 says, all the more as you see the day approaching. Stir one another up to love and good works. All the more as you see the day approaching. As I've studied this passage, my prayer has been that everyone that hears this passage preached would consider their souls. So I plead with everybody here, consider your soul. Are you ready for the coming of Christ? He's coming in an hour you don't expect. Are you prepared and are you ready? Have you turned from your sin and put your faith in Christ and He changed everything for you? And if so, brothers and sisters, stay awake. Stay awake for that. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your Word. And thank You specifically for these warnings to us. Help us, please, to take heed to these warnings. And God, if, they, if there are any here that are on the path to being excluded on the last day, on the last day unexpectedly, God, I pray You'd wake them up. Help them to see the power, Lord, of true conversion that when You convert a soul, You change them. And I pray, God, that You would make every one of us ready, young and old. And Lord, we say about that day, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. We love You in Jesus' name. Amen.